Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to our time together, as I always do. So I'm driving over to the studio today. I'm thinking to myself, I can hardly wait to be with my peeps this afternoon. I'm going to be uh, joined in uh, the studio by Dr. Mark Muska in the second hour today. I'm just working backwards. And then uh, Pastor Jonathan Parnell is going to be joining me around 3.30. And to start things off, we're going to talk to Rob Bluey. So Tuesday Blues Day, good way to remember what day Rob Bluey is on. He's on Tuesday. He's my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I don't like to talk about current events that much, maybe an hour a week max. And when I go to what's going on in the world, I prefer to go to Rob Bluey. He is uh, the executive editor of the Daily Signal, which is a great website. Go to dailysignal.com to learn more about that. And I'm looking forward to... uh, Mark Muska being in studio, because that's always Ask the Professor. So get your questions ready now. You can start by sending them to me in an email, bill at myfaithradio.com. That's one way to get me the questions, or you can text at 877-933-2484. So get your, um, get your questions ready for him. Ask the Professor any question you have about the Bible, maybe uh, something you heard you want clarification on. But for now, let's take a little break and then be joined by Rob Louie. Statesman Edmund Burke is noted for saying the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, that statement should encourage all of us to engage in culture and be the salt and light Jesus calls us to be. But Burke also said this, Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Now, could I suggest that many who listen to Faith Radio have that perspective when it comes to supporting this ministry? Believing a small gift doesn't make a difference, they don't get involved. As Burke says, this is a great mistake. Faith Radio is fueled by many gifts that might be considered small by today's standards. $20, $30, or $40 single gifts, or $10 or $20 a month. Each of these gifts, when combined with the others, form the foundation on which this outreach is built. So thanks for your willingness to do something rather than nothing. Because of your gifts, the gospel goes out and lives are changed. Make your gift, whatever the size, today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. You know, on Tuesdays, I always love talking to Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Go to DailySignal.com. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Bill. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, explain to me how the Democrats tried so hard to craft Obamacare and then get it passed. And now all of a sudden in the election that we've got coming up in 2020, it seems that health care is a big concern and we have to redo it and everything's got to be uh, changed. And they want to now go to a, a you know, a single payer health insurance. Uh, how did we how did we create so much un- dissatisfaction in such a short amount of time? 
Right. And you're really just talking about a span of a decade. I yes. mean, that's that's not that long ago. I mean, and it seems that uh, Republicans for, for much of that time were the ones who were complaining about Obamacare. Well, uh, they're not they don't want to talk about health care at all. Much to my chagrin, I wish that they would be more aggressive uh, in, in Congress and doing something. But, yes, you're absolutely correct that it is the Democrats who are having this robust debate. Bill, let's take a step back. I think, first of all, there is. Uh, right now, what you're seeing, an appetite for new policy ideas. So you have so many different candidates who are in this field running for president that they're all competing against each other to put out new policy proposals. And that's naturally led to this debate about what to do over health care. Now, among the Democrats who are running, you have quite the extreme. I mean, you have those who want to go to a single-payer system, Medicare for all. You have those who want to preserve certain aspects of Obamacare, maybe some t- tinker around the edges. So there is uh, there there is difference there. Uh, what I think that they're missing, though, is what the actual voters want. I mean, they're right now appealing to their base, and their base probably wants you know the the most radical proposal that you can you can imagine. But when you actually talk to those hardworking Americans who come home and don't necessarily um, think about policy issues every day, what they probably want most is to have the choice in who is going to be their doctor. So they, if they have a doctor they like now, they want to be able to keep that doctor. And they don't want to be paying these exorbitant uh, premiums that we've seen skyrocket since Obamacare was passed. Unless your plan was grandfathered in or you somehow uh, have been able to, to maintain the status quo, um, you know, otherwise you have seen, like every other American, your rates go up. And that's, uh, that's hitting the pocketbook, and that's what people care about. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at the numbers, Rob, and it's something like 90% of Americans feel that they're satisfied with their health care coverage. I mean, you take any other commodity, 90% of Americans like the fact they get cold milk at the grocery store and they're happy with their milk. Why would we want to completely redo the industry? Well, that's a great question. And and by the way, the other stat that I saw recently was 90%, 9 out of 10 Americans are now actually covered by insurance. I mean, right. remember, that was the original goal of right. Obamacare. It was too many Americans didn't have coverage. Well, I mean, there are some people, let's face it, who just will simply not be covered. I'm sure that there are some people out there who are driving around their cars right now listening to this program who might not have ins- who might not have car insurance. I hope they do. But, I mean, there are people who make choices, and they, they choose not to do that. They may choose not to have health insurance. So there are always going to be some people who you're never going to cover. I think that the, uh, the correct approach is to put more power back into the consumer's hand, let the patients have more decision-making power. That's personally why I like something like – health savings account because it allows me to make decisions with my own money and decide how how that money is spent. Uh, yes, I mean, I, it does mean that I pay a little bit more for prescriptions when I when I go uh, and, and pick one up because I'm probably paying in some cases the full price, but I also have a, a, a deductible. Once I meet that deductible, you know, then all of the, you know, the, the prescriptions are, are then covered. So, you know, there are different approaches out there, and I think that that's what American the American people fundamentally want. They want the freedom to choose the plan that works best for them. For some, it's going to be an HMO, for others it might be a PPO, and others it might be an HSA. So all sorts of things uh, are out there, Bill, and we need to encourage that competition, and that's where I think you'll have uh, more success in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, since President Trump has taken office, he's uh, appointed a large number of uh, judges. I don't don't know what the number is right now, but there's been an even greater opposition to the nominees— I saw that it jumped from three to seventy percent after he took office. That's right. So that's, it's really that's, they're coming out in remarkable. droves. 
Yeah, so there is a lot more oppositions. It's not, and it's it's with judges. It's also with the executive branch positions. I mean, you have a, a number of positions in this uh, in this president's administration that remain uh, unfilled. Uh, they're going to confirm some this week. Uh, for instance, we haven't had a UN ambassador since the start of the year. We hopefully will have one uh, here at the, uh, the the end of July. Uh, so you know, it it just takes an incredibly long time. And you're right that a lot of that has to do with obstruction and uh, the the resistance that we've seen on the part. Part of some senators. Uh, and, and when it comes to judges, I think this is where you've seen it most, uh, because those are lifetime appointments. Now, keep in mind, those who are going into administration positions will only be there probably for another year and a half. Uh, you know, there's some who may stay over if President Trump is reelected for a second term, but a lot of times there's that changeover that takes place at the at the second term. Judges aren't like that. I mean, the judges will be there for the rest of their life if they want to or until they choose to retire. I mean, we see that oftentimes with the Supreme Court. And uh, the, the Senate is going to be voting on 19 different uh, federal district court judges this week. I mean, that's one of the, the biggest uh, tranches that you'll see move through the Senate. But uh, in many cases, there are a number of vacancies still out there. And uh, what does that mean? Well, the, the cases pile up, uh, you know, and there are, there are implications. What does it mean for the executive branch nominees? Well, Bill, I mean, in, in some of these cases, uh, the president's agenda is not being able to be implemented simply because he doesn't have the right people in those jobs. You have some agencies where there are still holdovers from the Obama administration two and a half years later still doing some of those jobs. So it is a serious problem. Of, I don't know how to fix it. Uh, everything moves slow in Washington, and everything even moves even slower when it comes to the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. This popped into my head driving over here to the studio today, and that was, what has happened to the new press secretary? <laughs> That's a good question. We see a lot of Hogan Gidley on uh, on Fox News, but uh, n- not so much of uh, the press secretary. You know, I-, I think that everybody's going to have uh, his or her different style. I mean, look, we uh, we've seen it with with the various uh, press secretaries that this president has had. Sean Spicer liked to be in front of the camera in the briefing room every day. Uh, it was must-see TV. Anthony Scaramucci came in. Of course, he shook things up in, in his way. Sarah Huckabee Sanders started out doing a lot of press briefings, and I think over time uh, saw that they were you know, really just about entertainment for, in many cases, the journalists, and it wasn't about relaying much information. So Stephanie Grisham, you know, she may have her own approach uh, in terms of how she wants to uh, navigate the job. I, um, I suspect that uh, you know, being in, in the middle of summer, there's not necessarily the urgency to do something uh, immediately, but, uh, but she is active. Um, she's, uh, she's building a team there, and you know, Fred Lucas, who's our White House correspondent at the Daily Signal, um, is still uh, still able to, to get the news and information that, that he needs. Uh, you just don't see it necessarily on TV as you did in the past. That's interesting. I didn't know if it, it's the White House's discretion as to how often they have conferences, right, press conferences? That's correct. It is. And they... Uh, in many cases, you're, you're absolutely correct in the past, the press briefings would take place religiously every day at 1230 or 2 o'clock or whenever the time was set. It was usually sometime in the afternoon, early afternoon. Um, the president himself, though, has, has done something that I think is quite different from uh, his predecessors. Oftentimes when he's leaving for a trip, uh, you'll see him on the, the outside the White House with the helicopter engine uh, roaring in the background, and he'll, he'll take questions directly from the, the press corps. He'll bring the press into one of his cabinet meetings and, and take questions uh, early on. He will um, be in the Oval Office and take questions that way. So the pre- this president has actually made himself more accessible and available than uh, some of his predecessors. And so I think that that 
reduces probably the need for the press secretary to get in front of a camera to do that. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the press office of the White House is, is constantly busy. Again, whether you see them standing in front of the camera is another matter. Mm-hmm. When we look at the map of America, Rob, uh, and we see all these colors, and we, I think we all understand uh, red and blue pretty easily, but when it comes to a color like purple, what does that mean? <laughs> well, purple is when you mix the two. So we uh, we we, ha- we have a uh, you know Virginia is often described as a purple state. I think Minnesota, in some cases, could be described as a purple state. Certainly, Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, uh, those those types of Michigan, those are states where you have, in the case of 2016, President Trump winning. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and then what happens two years later? You have Democrats capture, uh, you know, the governorship in in Wisconsin, for instance, the Senate seat in in Michigan, the governor in Michigan. So you you know, it's it's a state that flips back and forth compared to other reliably red and blue states. And so those states tend to be those states that you might describe them as bellwether states. They, um, they have a, a split in the electorate, and you know, depending on who's running for office, uh, you might have a Republican or you might have a Democrat. Uh, we've actually seen Virginia, which was the, the kind of go-to purple state, uh, trend much more to a blue state. So over time, some of these states can uh, develop uh, more characteristics that are, are more likely to elect a Republican or a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be right back with Rob. Welcome back to the show. I have Rob Bluey on our studio line. He is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. And my every Tuesday guest, I get all the news and information that I need to know right from Rob. Uh, he's got uh, his uh, finger on the pulse of it, as I like to say, which I've never said before until now. So maybe I don't like to say it, but it is true. Rob knows what's going on in D.C. So, Rob, let me ask you about uh, just this idea of all the, the hateful speech that's going on, because it it really stirs up people's emotions big time. Well, it certainly does. It's it's really quite unfortunate uh, that we, we find ourselves in a situation where we seem to be dividing um, rather than uniting. And, uh, you know, as, as a Christian, as a conservative who believes in, you know, civil discourse and, and strong, robust debate without name-calling, uh, it pains me to see that we sometimes resort to this type of behavior, and I think that uh, members of both parties are are guilty of it. And uh, and whenever possible, we should set a an example where um, we are, you know, striving, and what we can do it at the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation and Faith Radio, where we don't uh, we, we we condemn that kind of behavior, Bill, but also uh, we live up to a higher standard and we try to be role models, and so. Um, you know, some of our political leaders sometimes fall short of that. Uh, you know, no one is, is certainly perfect, um, but it's important that we call them out. And, you know, this is why I think uh, I love working for uh, a boss like uh, Kay Coles James, our president at the Heritage Foundation, who's unafraid uh, to, to you know, step in and it doesn't necessarily always align on uh, in terms of who necessarily supports your policies, but uh, you you need to have the courage to be able to step up and do that, uh, despite the criticism that you may endure. Mm-hmm. So we've got another uh, debate tonight on television. 
We do. Well, we have debates tonight and tomorrow night. Okay. Remember, there are so many candidates That's that true. they can't fit them all on one stage. So uh, tonight will be uh, you know people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So I, I suspect that tonight you'll see some of those uh, positions that we were just talking about on health care uh, come to the surface and probably be a lot of robust discussion over those issues. Tomorrow night, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris will be on the same stage together along with Cory Booker. So, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the ramifications are. Uh, of course, after the first two debates, we saw some pretty big changes in the polling. Uh, Joe Biden lost uh, some some of the support that he had. Kamala Harris picked it up. Uh, many people attributed that to her aggressive tone with him. Uh, we'll see if she brings that uh, to the stage tomorrow night. Uh, this will be the last debate before the debates in September, so we have to wait all the way until September 12th and 13th for the next round of debates. Uh, but it should be interesting. I, I think that uh, with the number of policy proposals that are have been introduced in the in the last few weeks, there's no shortage of things to talk about, plus all the current events that we have going on across the globe and uh, and here in the United States. I'd love to have a discussion, frankly, on uh, this debate we're having on Baltimore. And let's hope we can keep it on a policy discussion and, and leave some of the personalities and the hateful speech out of it. Yeah, I'm curious, Rob. What? Tell me your thoughts about Baltimore and and what 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 would you like to see discussed? Well, Baltimore, of course, not too far from from us here in Washington. I've been to Baltimore many times myself, uh, and uh, pass through there on the train. If you're going up to New York or Philadelphia, I mean, you see some of those those sections of town that are are really, as Bernie Sanders himself uh, called it, uh, th- look like a third world country. I mean, it is uh, it is a tough uh, tough tough community. Um, what would I like to see? I'd, I'd like to see, first of all, a recognition that the policies we, we've tried for the last uh, couple generations are not working. Uh, since the uh, war on poverty of the 1960s, we've devoted trillions of dollars toward this problem, and I don't think that uh, the welfare programs and some of the other government aid uh, has necessarily materialized in the way that we thought it would. So I think that we need to have a recognition that we should try new things. I think that regardless of whether you're a liberal or conservative, there's an appetite to do that. I think that there are different approaches. There are some who value civil society, uh, maybe religious organizations and churches to play a more aggressive role. There are others who want government to step up into a more of a lead role. Uh, regardless of where you fall there, I, I at least would hope that we could acknowledge that what's currently uh, in place is not the answer. Yeah, it's a it, it's interesting the way the uh, press has gone into an absolute uh, war over what's going on in Baltimore. And I don't know if we can just look at some of the evidence and just say what is true about the situation and what is untrue. It seems that we just start throwing fireballs right away. Well, we we do. We often resort to that, and that's one of the things that I think has become problematic with anything this president touches. There's automatically that reaction, and uh, it it, it prevents us from having the real, uh, you know, uh, conversation, the substantial debate that we should probably be having about some of these issues. On the other hand, the president has raised something that we probably wouldn't be talking, you and I wouldn't be talking about Baltimore and some of the issues associated with it um, had he not brought it up. Now, I would, I, I, I differ with him in terms of how he raised the issue, uh, but at the same time, I do think that it is a community uh, like many others in this country who are that are struggling, and it's not just urban areas. There's some rural areas that uh, that are certainly struggling as well, and we need to uh, take a close look at those those communities. Um, I think that sometimes those in Washington are skewed by the fact that here we are in in the federal city, uh, which is booming because of government, uh, and and obviously there's there's 
<laughs> very little uh, economic ramifications when we have a recession because the government's always uh, operating. Uh, we sometimes lose sight of what uh, what the effects are in the rest of this country. President Trump was able to tap into that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that he won in 2016. I think it's one of the reasons uh, that he has the potential, hopefully, to put forward some policy issues that, that could lead us to a better place. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if I could just jump back to the debate for a minute, because uh, you at The Daily Signal have such high ethics and integrity, and you guys are, are just awesome at what you do. And it just m- makes me wonder now, with the, the debate tonight and CNN carrying it, and what I've been reading about um, the the head of CNN sort of being in the tank for uh, uh, Kamala Harris uh, is is can they be objective? I, first of all, I you're asking somebody who uh, is very transparent uh, and works for a conservative media organization. We um, we do not hide the fact that we are a conservative media organization. We uh, label every piece of content, either news or opinion or analysis. We want to make it clear to our our readers and our audience uh, who we are. And I think uh, far too few journalists do that. I think that uh, whether you, in particular, when you look at the national news media, they uh, claim to be objective and. As, as we all know, uh, it's hard to uh, <laughs> be de- completely devoid of opinions. And sometimes we see those opinions seep into the news coverage, and increasingly we see that happening on uh, many of the cable networks where it does seem that they pick sides and, uh, and have taken a position. And I think that's fine, Bill. I think it's, we've, we, look, we've lived through eras in this country where we've had a partisan press, we've had an ideological press. Um, I think that the most important thing that you can do for your audience that you're trying to reach, and this is what we try to do at The Daily Signal, is we be, we be clear and transparent with them. We are after the truth. And by the way, if we're, we're publishing a news story, we're going to give you both sides, and we're going to try to let you decide. We're going to try to cover that issue as fairly as possible. If you disagree with us, send us a letter to the editor. We'll publish it. We'll let your, you know, your, your opinion speak for itself. So uh, not all news organizations necessarily do that, and I think CNN, uh, like others, could, uh, could stand to improve in that territory. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, well said. Okay, Rob, uh, let, let's hopefully we'll, – we won't bring this up many more times – um, I'm already trying to compartmentalize in my head so I forget it forever. Um, the ongoing Mueller report, can we please, please have this be over? Well, I don't know. With the debate <laughs> the next two nights, <laughs> it's probably bound to come up in some context. But uh, look, there, uh, there's, this is not the end of it. Uh, yes, Robert Mueller has testified. It was disappointing uh, to many who were expecting a blockbuster moment. Uh, you will see this continue for years to come, and, and here's why, because there is always going to be this narrative that some on the left are pushing, that President Trump is, was illegitimately elected and uh, did things that he shouldn't have. Uh, there are those who are always going to believe that to be the case, and whether they do this through books or movies or through uh, schools, I think that you're going to see them continue to push that, that narrative and agenda. Uh, what does it mean for conservatives? I mean, I think it means things like when in the case of um, – Brett Kavanaugh, you saw who were the first people to have a book out about Brett Kavanaugh. It was Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway, mm-hmm. two, conservative, two conservatives who wanted to set the record straight from their perspective. I think that you're going to have to see conservatives uh, take back the culture, fight for these things in Hollywood, in books, in other forms, uh, to really set the narrative straight because, let's face it, it's a, it's a never-ending battle. And uh, just because the fight on Capitol Hill may be over, uh, you're going to continue to see it uh, play out in other forums. Yeah. Well, my blessings to the Bluey family and uh, you, Rob, and and the work you do at The Daily Signal. I so appreciate uh, talking to you every week. 
you, Bill. Have a great one. Yep. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. Always glad when Rob Bluey uh, chats with me on Tuesdays. And now I've got a friend in studio, Jonathan Parnell. He's the lead pastor of Cities Church in Minneapolis. He lives there. He lives in the Twin Cities with his wife, Melissa. They have seven kids. And he's authored a book called Never Settle for Normal, The Proven Path to Significance and Happiness. But really, I want to talk to him about kind of a sermon series he's got going on at his church this summer on the book of Psalms. Who doesn't love Psalms? The book of Psalms. Jonathan, welcome. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, Psalms, I probably am I'm in Psalms at least every day. Yep. Would you say the same for yourself? Yes. Ha, ha, has, that has been the case for years now. Okay. Uh, the, the Psalms are uh, one of those books. I mean, Bonhoeffer called the Psalms the, the you know, the prayer book for the Christian. It's, yeah. it's, they're, they're, it's a book that is um, practical, therapeutic, teaches us how to pray, mm-hmm. a book that... Uh, is an easy entry point for anyone who is even new to faith, um, or even longtime Christians who are just consistently helped by by the book. So, so how have you gone about structuring this time uh, at your church with Psalms, and how are you leading your, your flock uh, in Psalms? That's a good question. So there, you know, there are all kinds of different ways to teach the Psalms. The Psalms are divided into five different books, and that kind of parallels the five books of Moses in the Pentateuch. And so uh, there are different kinds of psalms, psalms of praise. There are lament psalms, mm-hmm. uh, Thanksgiving psalms. Uh, some psalms are, you know, little uh, historical snippets of Israel's history. Um, what we've decided to do is just to go in order, to go starting with Psalm 1. We're doing 12 psalms this summer. Um, we're, you know, we're looking at, if you know, potentially over the next 10 to 15 years, going through just the entire book of psalms uh, each summer. Um, which would mean doing more than twelve, we know, but um, that's what we're doing so far. And uh, and we've we're in Psalm seven uh, this past Sunday, which has been sweet and been good for our church. To, a lot of lament psalms in the first one to seven, um, but um, we're yeah we're just going. We, the, the, one of the reasons we're doing that, I should say, is there's a you know the way the psalms are ordered. There's a there's an intentionality to the placement of each psalm. So. You know, when you read, for example, you know Psalms three through six, uh, there's a, an you know alternating here between morning and evening prayers, and so you know we can sometimes maybe tend to isolate psalms, but we want to look at the psalms like well, you know Psalm three, Psalm three is is between two and four for a reason. So like, what is the greater message that's happening here? And so that's one of the reasons why we we really value this kind of you know orderly you know, walk through the psalms. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, look at a little bit at Psalm 7, if you were just uh, freshly teaching on that last uh, last yeah. weekend, because um, it's uh, a, a Psalm of David. Um, it is. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's, he sang it to the Lord. Um, yeah, that's that's one thing. To, I mean, one thing to mention about the Psalms, you know, so the Psalms are, are so helpful and practical for the life of faith. And we, we can dip in really any Psalm we want. And there's so many connections we can make to our own, uh, our own faith, our own lives, our own struggles. 
Um, there, there also is a, a deeper question we should ask about the Psalms. That's what you know. What is the role of Psalms in Scripture overall? Like, what you know, what is the, the theological purpose of Psalms in the greater narrative mm-hmm. of the Bible? Great question. And yeah, well, one of the one of the things we, the way we kind of set the book up is 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 trying to we the way we set our sermon series up was trying to answer that question. And uh, you know, you look at the Psalms. One of the things I learned as a kid was. Uh, the, you know, the Psalms was one of the easiest books of the Bible to find because I was told you just take, you just, it's always right in the center. <laughs> you just take your thumb, you just yeah. right there, boom, and, you know, look, Mom, here it is, the Psalms. Yeah. And uh, and so um, I, I think there's something significant to that, that, you know, right in the center of our Bible, we have this book that, that literally teaches us how to pray and is this integration of our, our vision of God, the knowledge of God, and also like how we live in light of that. That's what mm-hmm. the Psalms are. They're showing us that. And the big theological question I think the Psalms answer is is really a, the question concerning the house of David. And this is where if we're you know if we're if we're tracking with the history of Israel, you know, you you, you come to of course uh, Israel wants a king, God gives him a king, Saul was the first king, he wasn't the guy. David is really the king that God has uh you know plan for Israel to have. He's anointed in Second Samuel, First Samuel 16. And then, of course, you have him going defeating Goliath in First Samuel 17. By First Samuel 18, you have Saul, who is extremely jealous of David because he's a better warrior, which mm-hmm. is, was the value back then. And then, you know, David eventually takes the throne, and there's this amazing promise in Second Samuel, uh, Samuel 16 about David. Uh, the Davidic house. There's going to be a king who's going to always be on the throne of David, and his kingdom shall never end. And we know that's about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. That's about Jesus. Uh, however, we're looking then. You know, we're looking for who's this son of David who's going to reign as king forever. And we see Solomon, and we think it might be him. It's not Solomon. It's not Solomon's son. And, and then you just have this succession, one after the other, these different kings of Israel. And the repeated refrain is that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did not walk in the path of their father, David. And then they, they, they died. They were buried. They slept with their fathers. And, uh, and so you see this. This is not what we were anticipating here in 2 Samuel 7 about this Davidic king. And, and so the, the book, if you look at the historical books, books like you know 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, Chronicles, it ends with the the Davidic house is in slavery in Babylon. So these these foreign rulers have come in, they've conquered the city, Jerusalem, and they have taken captive the king of Israel, the son of David. And he's in Babylon. He's in shackles. This is mm-hmm. not what we were expecting here if we're looking at the Davidic promise and so the question that begins to crest as you read the Old Testament narrative is what's going to happen to the house of David? Like we have these promises that God has given about this, this son of David who's going to reign as king. Clearly that's not what's happening. And so there's this the big question is what's next? And I think the Psalms uh, come in to say there is a future for the house of David. And the future for the house of David is is all about this son of David who will rise up and be a greater David. And, uh, and so you know, one, of the, one of the ways that I think we can see this clearly in the Bible is how the book of Ruth. So, you know, our ordering, the Christian Bible, the, the ordering is a little bit different than the Hebrew scriptures. 
in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Book of Psalms is is the is called is part of the writings, and these are your poetic books, your wisdom literature. The Book of Ruth is actually part of the the section where the Psalms are in, which is odd a little bit because Ruth is a historical book. However, if you look at Ruth, at, which which is comes before the Psalms in the Tanakh ordering of Scripture. The book of Ruth is all about the house of David. It's about, it begins, there's this man from Bethlehem in Judah, and his name is Elimelech, mm-hmm. which means God is king. Well, what happens to Elimelech? Well, he dies, and he's got no sons to continue his house. So, you know, this book of Ruth, God is king, he dies, he's got no sons. And then, of course, there comes the story of Naomi and, of course, Ruth, and well, Elimelech had two sons, but they died. They too. died. Yeah, right, right. So that's the and that that's kind of you know, the book opens up. He's got these two sons. These two sons die, and and so there's no one to continue his right. his lineage. And so you know, according to we, the book of Ruth, opens and God, his king is dead. He's got no sons. His sons have died, and uh, and then that's where you know eventually Naomi and Ruth they go and they meet Boaz. And Boaz, the Bible is very clear. Is you know from the house of Bethlehem in the in, within the the line of Judah, and then he becomes the kinsman redeemer. And the book ends this the book of Ruth ends with this genealogy, mm-hmm. which is odd for this book to be in the writings in this section of poetic literature. But the book ends in Ruth four, verse twenty-two. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And then the Psalms is all about the house of David, you know. And so I think that, that Ruth is meant to show us that there is a future for the house of David. The Psalms follow the book of Ruth to say, yeah, here and here is that future. Mm-hmm. And we read about in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 about this king who is also a son who is seated on the throne forever. And as we see here in Psalm 2, The great warning, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you have this this king who is also a son who is given authority over all nations in Psalm 2. And that's the answer to what's going to happen to the house of David. It has to do with this king in Psalm 2. Well, I've not connected those dots before, Jonathan. That's... uh Really cool. Yeah, there's. A, I mean, it's one of those things. We're going to have Bible studies in heaven. You know, like this book is so deep and so glorious, and and I'm always loving. I love to learn new things and see new insights. And I feel like there's just so much in the Psalms, and I'm really hoping to trying to to really dig into that stuff this summer with our church. And we've it's been sweet for us so far. Yeah. Well, last Sunday you were teaching on uh, Psalms chapter seven, seven. and as yeah. I look at that, and I look at even the first two verses. The language feels very dramatic when you say, it starts off really nice, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save me and deliver me from all who pursue me. It's kind of a nice, pleasant thought. Then it goes on to say, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Yeah, that's an intense image (laughs) that David gives. Shifts gears kind of quick, doesn't it? Yeah, and you got to think, you know, like, uh, I, I, there's a historical part element to this, and there's also this imaginative part. Historically, you know, the the superscript here is about you know the words. This is David saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite, and we don't know exactly who he's talking about there. We do know the word, you know, the Benjaminites. If you go back to First and Second Samuel, they were very bitter toward David because Saul was a Benjaminite, and 
God stripped the kingdom from Saul, gave it to David. And so there were Benjaminites who were bitter about David becoming the king of Israel because it, it meant that Saul, was, of course, was, was removed from his kingship. And, uh, and so you see in 2 Samuel, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei, who was a Benjaminite, he's cursing David, he's throwing dirt at David, stones at David. And he's probably representative of a lot of Benjaminites who were very antagonistic to David. And part of their antagonism, will, I think, were these false um, accusations that David had wrongfully taken the kingdom from Saul. So that's probably the context here of what David's referring to. Is there these, you know, they're, they're saying that David is a man of blood. Uh, he wrongfully took the kingdom from Saul, and, and now they want to punish David because of that. So that's the historical part. And then the imagery, though, in verse 2 is powerful. Like, you know, think David was a shepherd. So he, he he knew what a lion could do. Right? Mm-hmm. He, he had seen what lions could do. And here the image is these, these pursuers, his enemies, they, they want to tear him to pieces like he has seen lions do to sheep or to other animals. And, uh, and you know, the word there, you know, for in chapter, in verse 2, for soul, that's the word, the Hebrew word, it can mean like life or breath, or it's also sometimes translated throat and and so the image here really is a, a lion who is, is tearing your throat out. Like it is a graphic, graphic image. And, and David, in his realism, he, under, he understood that if God doesn't help him, he is vulnerable like that to this vicious attack of this, you know, this lion who wants to literally bring him to pieces, as the text says here in verse 2. So the graphic imagery in, yeah. in the Psalms. If I was a shepherd and I saw that, I would do a career move quickly. Exactly. I would go from shepherd to baker. Yes. You know? <laughs> Jonathan Parnell is in studio. We're going to take a little break. We come back, continue more on the teachings of Psalms in just a minute. having in studio Jonathan Parnell. He's the lead pastor of Cities Church in Minneapolis, and he lives uh, here in the Twin Cities, and he's the author of Never Settle for Normal, The Proven Path to Significance and Happiness. This summer, though, he's leading his flock through the book of Psalms, and we're, we're talking about Psalms, and it's been fascinating. We've been in uh, chapter 7, and um, boy, the, the discussion on the book of Ruth and how it connects to Psalms is fascinating. If you missed any of this, you're going to want to start from the beginning uh, and hear the whole discussion because it's been so, so, so interesting. Now, as I'm looking at uh, chapter 7, Jonathan, because you taught on this just recently, in the last one, two, three, four verses, um, it talks about whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to delusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. How, do, how does the, the reader, how do we read that and understand that? That's a great question. I think one of the things that we that's hard to see um, as we're looking at Psalm 7 is the the actual structuring of the psalm like if we you know because we have it in the context of these other psalms and and it's not always in one column 
Um, if we could, I think, take 1 to 17 and just put them kind of all in one row, mm-hmm. we would see there are actually these themes within the psalm. There's these parallels. It's what's called a chiastic structure. So basically, Psalm 1, uh, I mean, Psalm 7, verse 1 and 2 actually parallels verse 17. It's just basically, it's a, it's a prayer of thanks, a prayer of, of, of hope, of praise to God. And then, like, basically there are parallels throughout. So, like, for example, verse 3 down to verse 7 is David asking for justice um, from God in regards to these accusations from Cush the Benjaminite. And so he's saying, you know, God, have justice on me, which for him meant I'm innocent, so vindicate me. And that's also what he's asking here in verses 12 to 16. It's a parallel. He's asking for he's asking for justice, except this time it's not, you know, justice means vindication for the innocent. It means judgment for the wicked. And that's what's happening here at the end. And what's really interesting about this judgment is that there are two parts to it. The first part is, you know, God's this active avenger. So if you back up a little bit, Bill, from what you had read in verse 12, we see, you know, God, you know, if man, this is what, what, what David's saying, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So there's this image of God himself with this bow drawn, like ready to unleash wrath on the mm. wicked. And then if you get in like you read here in verses 14, it seems more like this is kind of the self-imploding of the wicked. Like it's not that God is going to judge them per se. This is they're, they're falling into pits that they themselves have dug, yeah. which is like you know, it goes back to the you know, Wally Coyote Roadrunner <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> right. I mean, that's basically what this is. Like the wicked, like, you know, animals are falling on their heads and it's, you know, they, they try to use those to, to, to harm the, the righteous. And instead, you know, they're the ones who... Are, uh, are 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 reaping the uh, the consequences of their of their own evil, and uh, which I think I think we see both. I think you know one of the things this, this is you have to kind of this is in in our world because God has created a, a world with a moral order of right and wrong and of causality, which means we we live by causality. We we all do certain things because we believe it will have certain outcomes, and. The, the principle for this that we see, by and large, in most cases, is we tend to reap what we sow. This is in the Bible, of course, in Galatians 6. Paul says this. This is just kind of like conventional wisdom in the world. If you if you sow bad, you reap bad. You sow good, you reap good. Now, it doesn't always go that way. Ecclesiastes tells us that. You know, we have words for it, injustice, suffering. That's mm-hmm. when that this, the world doesn't make sense because it's cursed. And so one of the things that, that we've tried to say is that is that suffering and injustice are common in this world, but they're not natural. That's that's not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the way it's supposed to be is is that there's there's justice, which means the innocent are vindicated and the righteous are 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 punished. Um, and so David here, I think he's appealing to God based upon the way the world is supposed to be. God, I'm innocent in this case. Vindicate me. The wicked are saying these untrue things. Stop them. Judge them. And he's appealing to, I think, just the general wiring of this world as a world of, of where there's a moral order. And that means, and I think we see this, like eventually the wicked will fall into the pits that they themselves have dug. Um, and, uh, and David is banking on that because he knows that is part of the way God has designed his universe. Well, you're giving us a, a little uh, 
deep sea dive There's a lot on, there. on chapter seven. I, I don't know. Do, do do a lot of people do deep sea dives on Psalms, or do they kind of kind of breeze through them on a jet ski? Yeah, and that's the and thing they, about the. I mean, that's the glory of the book is that if you got if you got fifteen minutes before work, you don't you know um, open the Psalms, read a Psalm, pray a Psalm, mm-hmm. and God meets us in the Psalms. Like here, what an amazing book that God has given us. And then if you have more time and and uh, you got a you know a notepad and a pen, I mean, dig into that, grab some commentaries, yeah. look at some cross cross references. And so it is. I mean, that's the thing about the book that that I love is that I you know I try to memorize psalms. I'm always starting my mornings with a psalm. I'm always you know always trying to 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 just kind of start. I mean, again, it's modeling for us. How do we come to God? Well, look at the psalms. Look at the the, the psalmists are, are honest. They're real. They're not pretending. They're not putting on. They're just coming. This is who, this is where I am, God. Yeah. This is who I am, and and they're coming to God with that. And so I. I, I love I love the Psalms for that reason, and so I'd say, if you got time, spend time there. If you don't have a lot of time, open them up and uh, and and pray what God has for us here. Yeah, Jonathan, do you have a, um, a favorite chapter, or do you have like your top three places you go in Psalms for either comfort or encouragement or yeah. or peace? That's a great question. I, Psalm fifty one is an important Psalm. I'm actually I'm I've just finished a book on Psalm fifty one. Uh, that's going to be released, God willing, in January of 2020. But the book is, uh, there's a prayer that I pray, a four-petition prayer taken from Psalm 51 that I have prayed every day for the last several years, four or five years now, every morning. And it's kind of a a, a, a prayer from Psalm 51 that just kind of steadies my soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the place that most consistently I'm going. Of course, there are other Psalms that are so helpful. Psalm 139, when it comes to God's presence. Psalm 143, when it comes to uh, being rooted and, and anchored in the steadfast love of God. There's Psalm 46, when it comes to who is God, you know, what the, the vision of who God is and how we need this vision of God to to, to make it through, to endure the hardships of life. There's someone that encourages us to get in the Word of God. Psalm 3, which talks about the importance of good sleep and how good sleep is an act of faith. Um, I mean, we, there's so many Psalms. Psalm 23 is a favorite Psalm that we can always go to mm. um, about God's continued presence. Psalm 24, the enthronement of this king, uh, which is all, I mean, there's, I mean, so many places. One of the things I love about the Psalms is that um, as I'm as I'm meeting with people and doing counseling and visiting folks, the Psalms there's always something there. I feel like for someone in that moment, whatever that is, and so I've I've been really helped by the Psalms, and there it's an easy place for me to, an easy way for me to share with other people whatever it, they're going isn't through. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, yeah. I I go to the Psalms uh, daily, I think, and I, I find, you know, some Psalms are, are an ongoing. Um, they always seem to reveal God's character to me. Uh, in Psalms. And I even look at Psalm 39 and 88. Mm. Those are two Psalms that end with virtually no hope, mm. uh, which is interesting that God would, you know, have allow the psalmist to cry out the way he does. And and God's okay with that. He is. Psalm 88 is, is a Psalm that if you're, you know, usually the Psalms can go low, but by the end of the Psalm, there's, you know, oh, there's this bright moment. And yet Psalm 88, you know, it ends with, uh, darkness is my friend, you know, like, yeah. you know, there's this isolation, this loneliness and the sun is not breaking through. And, uh, and the thing about Psalm 88 is that he's still bringing this to God. I know. That's, I know. It's that's fantastic. it. You know, it's fantastic. And what a great lesson. You can feel like you're in a time of 
darkness or sadness or, or desperation. And you can cry out to God and just make sure you go to him first. Amen. I think I learned that from Psalm 88. Yeah. Yeah. And the psalmist, you know, Heman, who wrote that psalm, you know, was horribly depressed. And then he writes some of the most spectacular uh, poetry in, 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 in the whole Psalter. And you think, wow, I wonder how many people have that kind of level of depression that are unaware of how their work is going to impact the world. Yeah, good word. Yeah. So um, we've only got a couple, about a minute left or so. Are you also working on a new church plant? We are. So our church, you know, we, we want to multiply several churches uh, throughout the Twin Cities. And so we have a church that we're hoping to send out, planning to send out in September. Um, it's called Redeemer Church, which is going to be here in the Roseville area, nice. actually. Um, and so, yeah, we're excited about that. Excited. We, the team has been kind of incubating at our church for about a year. And so we've been investing in the leaders and, and, uh, and yeah, and we're excited now to, to see, you know, see them sent out and, uh, and trust in that God's going to do a great work through this church. And you think in September that's going to happen? We, we've that's been around the corner, yeah, yeah. My we've been working on it for a good while now. So yeah. about twelve to sixteen months, we've been working on this, and and so we're finally here at the uh, at the launch stage. We're excited about that. Nice. And you're going to continue the series on on Psalms for the rest of the summer. We'll do it through the summer, and then in September we're going to do the Book of Exodus. Love it. So excited yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, awfully nice to have you back in studio. It's always great to have you here, and nice to see you. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Yep. Jonathan Parnell's been my guest. He is the lead pastor of Cities Church in Minneapolis, and he's written a great book called Never Settle for Normal, The Proven Path to Significance and Happiness. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with lots more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.